The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. everybody that's joining early on here, appreciate it. As always, those that are repeat listeners, I've uh, been doing these spaces since the day after Thanksgiving, pretty much every day with different guests. As I always like to ask at the start of these conversations, I know many of you roll your eyes when I say this, but please do me a favor and retweet the pinned tweet. I'm not a journalist, not an anchor. I'm somebody with skin in the game trying to engage followers and get people out of their echo chambers with different thoughtful thought leaders like Dave Lauer. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report, and our special guest for the hour is Dave Lauer. All right, so Dave, I have to admit, you know, when I first reached out to you, you know, usually when I book different guests, I'm looking at who other thought leaders are following. And I started doing some deeper research on your story and what your primary focus is, and I was really very much intrigued, and I'm saying it sincerely, so I think this will be a good conversation. For those who are not familiar with your background, Dave, just talk about uh, who you are, how you got involved in markets, and uh, what uh, what your kind of view of the world is in general. Sure. Um, and, you know, thanks again for inviting me and, and having me on here. It's, uh, I've been a fan of these two for a while, so it, it's cool to to connect in this way. So I, I started in markets uh, as, a, as a computer nerd. I've been programming since I was a kid, and I started on the technology side in low latency trading. So uh, I was I worked in New York for a while to start up uh, helping firms to reduce latency in their automated trading systems and found that there was, you know, this thing going on called high frequency trading and it was sort of fascinating and also people were making a lot of money at it. So I said, well, I, maybe I should be doing that. Uh, and so I, I spent a couple of years uh, in high frequency trading first at Citadel and then at a smaller firm called Alston Trading in New York. I'm sorry, in Chicago. And uh, I kind of did everything there, I, I, both sort of on the quantitative research side of things, as well as software development and uh, implementation oversight of trading strategies. Most of what I did was event-based trading. So I focused on opening and closing auctions, news announcements, uh, where latency is so critical. We also did a lot of ETF market making and interlisted arbitrage between uh, different different markets like Canada and the US, UK, US, that kind of thing. But after a couple of years of that, I, I really just, I didn't like it. I didn't like what it appeared to be doing to markets. Uh, I lived through the flash crash, um, as I was talking with you earlier, and it, it seemed like it was making markets more fragile, not not better. Um, and so I, I, I kind of left finance and 
through a weird sequence of events, ended up on NPR talking about why I left finance. Uh, and that resulted in me testifying before the U.S. Senate Banking Committee and the SEC on electronic markets and high-frequency trading and market complexity, which is really the issue that I, I tended to focus the most on. And and through there, I, I sort of found that I could, I could still sort of be involved in markets and do other interesting things, uh, like help to design a stock exchange, which resulted in IEX. Uh, I worked with those guys early on um, and really enjoyed that. Uh, and, and now I sit on the board of the of a Canadian stock exchange, Equitas Neo Exchange, um, which were really focused not on being as fast as possible, but actually slowing markets down a bit to to see if that would help. I sit on the FINRA Market Regulation Committee. I volunteer to represent the public, you know, consult with FINRA on market structure issues that they're considering. Uh, I've worked with asset managers, a lot of institutional asset managers on issues around best execution and and quantitatively analyzing broker order routing algorithms. Um, and, you know, sort of throughout all of this, just kind of kept pushing and advocating for market structure reforms. So, you know, looking at how can we simplify markets how can we make them more transparent, more fair? How can we reduce off-exchange trading? And that has kind of all culminated in in sort of this uh, recent effort of mine um, after sort of <laughs> finding uh, or being found by Reddit last year and, you know, this new mass of, of retail investors and, you know, trying to help inform them and educate them on market structure and how it can impact them and seeing the sort of data and tools that they had access to. So recently I launched this new effort called uh, The Terminal under uh, a company called Urban Finance. And we're focused on providing uh, professional quality data and tools to retail investors, providing a, a platform for collaboration and communities to share and collaborate on research and also a real focus on education and advocacy. Okay, so on that point of education, we often hear this term high-frequency trading, as you alluded to. I, I'm not a fan of high-frequency trading, but I, I want you to outline for the audience the the pros and cons of high-frequency trading in terms of what it does for liquidity when it comes to markets. Because arguably, when you got rid of the specialist on the floor of the exchange, someone else or some other group had to replace uh, having in somebody actually physically there or looking at and matching uh, buy and sell orders. So, so talk through sort of the pros and cons here. Yeah, you know, I, look, I think that uh, in so much as high-frequency trading is essentially the computerization of market making, um, I, I I am no Luddite. I, you know, I, I am a, a geek through and through, and, um, you know, I believe in technology very much. So I, I don't believe high-frequency trading in itself is a bad thing per se. Uh, that's a lot of qualifications to say that, um, I do think that market structure is overly complex and purposefully so. So, um, you know, it's it's complex because lots of people can make ridiculous amounts of money uh, off of that complexity and inefficiency. Um, and so, you know, high frequency trading is uh, if, if the, for those that aren't necessarily so familiar with it, it it's using extremely high speed software and servers, sometimes hardware, specialized hardware, uh, to trade securities. And it, you, you find it in stocks, you find it in futures, you find it in options, and increasingly you're finding it in other asset classes as well. Um, and, you know, so to give you a sense, just even 10 years ago when I was doing it, 
you know, my software could act in, you know, a matter of microseconds. So the average latency of the software I was writing was around 40 microseconds from when it would get a an update from the market to when it would send the order out the door to act on that update. And so I think that computerized trading is important and has brought costs down for everyone. But the the level of fragmentation and complexity in today's market, so you have... I, uh, I, you know, it's actually hard to keep up with the account, but I think it's 15 stock exchanges right now um, and something like 50 uh, alternative trading systems. And then a bunch of systems like single dealer platforms and, and off exchange internalizers that don't even count within that framework. And so for one order to find another today in markets is extremely difficult uh, without being intermediated by multiple middlemen. And High frequency has stepped in as the middleman, and I think that's that's problematic. And it means that, for example, a retail trader will never find an institutional investor on the other side of their trade. And that doesn't make any sense. You know, institutions like mutual funds and pension plans and, and hedge funds uh, should not be cordoned off from retail uh, they should be interacting with each other and trading with each other. And that's the best outcome, which is a disintermediated outcome. But instead, you know, the exchange structure and the the internalization of wholesaling structure in retail has made it so that there is intermediation every step of the way. And, and by the way, just on that on that microsecond <laughs> term, yeah, I've heard you kind of go through some analogies on how people should think about speed. But just give the audience a little context on, on exactly how fast that that is we'll be back after a quick break hello listeners michael guyad here from lead lag live are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends risk management and investment strategies then you need the lead lag report our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before and guess what we're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate visit the lead report slash lead lag live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, so I, you know, I've heard that uh, like the blink of an eye is about 300 milliseconds. So you can blink your eyes like three times in a second. Um or a little more, like a nerve impulse from, you know, your finger to your brain. I've seen different numbers, but let's call it 80 milliseconds. So, uh, you know, a millisecond, there are a thousand of those in a second. And when I'm talking a microsecond, there are a million microseconds in one second. So, uh, you know, my software could do, you know, a hundred things in, in like the blink of an eye. So, you know, I, I think th these are time scales that, uh, are very foreign to humans, um, but from computer, you know, a computer, computer's perspective, it, it, it's it's relatively straightforward. But you know, that's that's like how our markets operate now. It's not at the time scale of humans as far as trading is concerned. You know, for the record, I think that some level of decentralized settlement and clearing is achievable in markets. Will happen in markets. I'm not, I've said it before, I'm not necessarily convinced sort of like this T0 BSTX solution is any solution to it. But, you know, that that sort of, because I, I, you know, it, they're making a big deal of an exchange, but exchanges don't clear and settle trade. So, but, you know, all of that aside, 
the the short answer is legacy systems. That's always the answer. You know, uh, I'm used to modern computerized trading systems. And, uh, you know, I'm used to crypto. I love crypto. And obviously, everything in crypto just kind of clears and settles right away. And so it's hard for for people that are used to these systems to realize that there is so much infrastructure in financial services that is not modern and that is, you know, is a vestige of, you know, things that were originally developed years or decades ago and were developed in a cost center, right? Like uh, compliance and the back office, that's a cost center to banks. Uh, It's not a profit center. And so they're usually loath to invest in it. So, you know, I, I, I think that's the simple explanation for why we're still clearing multiple days out. Um, I I think that T end of day is probably the best we're ever going to see in securities markets, regulated securities markets in the U.S. And I, I think that the argument that's going to win on faster settlement times is simply one of risk. And, you know, from what I've seen, for example, from Paxos, which is a firm I'm more familiar with than T0, is they're doing, you know, essentially peer-to-peer clearing and settlement. It's decentralized. It's as effective as centralized clearing. And it means that, you know, the industry doesn't have to tie up massive amounts of capital in the centralized uh, counterparty like the, the NSCC and and I think that that's a that's going to be a winning argument. I, but I don't I don't know that we're ever going to get to sort of real time settlement because I I think that means that that can be very problematic in all sorts of other ways. Like it means you have to pre fund all your trades, and it means that for people who are investing from overseas, it it might be uh, out of sync with FX markets, and so you know there's FX risk there. So I, I I've heard good arguments for why you don't want to do sort of T zero or real time continuous net settlement. Uh, but where why it would make sense to look at sort of T, T end of day. I want to go back to what you said a little bit earlier, Dave, that this point that you said market structure is overly complex purposely. It's kind of like purposeful obfuscation. So who's benefiting from that complexity? I'm not, I'm not saying name names or anything like that, but but is it is it one of those things where there's, you know, just a couple of firms that are are so aware of all these intricacies and yeah, they just keep that so tight to the chest that nobody else knows, and they benefit from it versus everybody else. Talk, talk about sort of, you know, that that dynamic because I think a lot of this, a lot of your work is focused on the idea of how do you create a level, fair playing field for everybody. Yeah, that's right, and and I I do think it it's a handful of firms. Yeah, you know, it's it's like the high speed speculators. They they like to call themselves market makers, but I, you know, to me, market making comes with affirmative obligations to make actually make markets in lots of different conditions, not just those that are beneficial for you. So, you know, I, I don't really think that they should be called market makers per se, but, you know, these high-speed speculating firms, uh, high-frequency trading firms benefit from the complexity and inefficiency. That's a big part of it um, because that's, that's their job essentially is to master that inefficiency. Um, the, the exchanges uh, on one hand, suffer from it because of the fragmentation and off-exchange trading, but on the other hand, benefit from it because, you know, regulation creates monopolies for exchanges over market data. And so they can charge egregious fees for market data, uh, for their private and proprietary market data, but also for the public market data. So you have the, the craziness of U.S. markets is that the exchanges are self-regulatory organizations. So these are publicly traded for-profit companies 
who set the rules and set and enforce the rules on exchange. And it's really, as far as I'm aware, the only industry in which you have publicly traded for-profit companies that are self-regulatory. And that sets up a pretty massive conflict of interest. They set the fees, for example, for public market data feeds, the SIP, the Securities Information Processor. And as somebody who's building a platform today to provide high-quality market data to retail investors at a very low price point, I can tell you that they don't make it easy. And that money translates into hundreds of millions of dollars a year that flows from the public as a, as a public subsidy to these exchanges who are private, for-profit companies. It often makes the difference between whether an exchange is viable or not. And so that's why you end up with 15 stock exchanges rather than three, for example, because they're being subsidized by the public. And so, you know, they benefit from the complexity and inefficiency and public subsidy. And then, you know, brokers who have to navigate all this for their clients, they, they benefit because, you know, that, that becomes a benefit. It becomes an entire business for them. Uh, the internalizers and the retail brokers benefit because of, you know, the system of payment for order flow. And, and so, you know, they turn their customers into the product uh, rather than, you know, being uh, compensated for providing good service. They get compensated for selling, you know, their customers' data and orders to to the internalizer. So, you know, it's sort of this really long pipeline of sort of complexity and corruption, uh, and it's reinforced by the regulator. You know, the revolving door uh, through the regulator. It's reinforced through extremely high campaign contributions by you know, very large, powerful firms or, or people um, that to maintain the status quo. And it's, it's kind of, you know, like the worst of democracy and the worst of subsidization and anti-competitive behavior, uh, despite being sort of the foundation of capitalism and the engine of capitalism. And I always find that part to be particularly frustrating and ironic. Okay. So, so I'm going to play the, the cynic for a second. So I'm with you on everything. And Oftentimes, the response would be that the answer is ultimately there has to be more disclosure. There has to be more awareness, more light being shown on on these dynamics. But I'll tell you, as somebody who's running funds myself, who's been in the business for a while and who has interacted with investors, whether they're institutional advisors or individual retail, that most people don't even read a prospectus, (laughs) right? They just look at a chart. And most people don't think about bid-ask spread. They just look at closing price. So I say all that because I'm trying to get a handle on how do you really not only get people to be aware, but actually try to kind of protest a little bit and and cause some change so that there's a level playing field when there is this tendency to just not care about any details in any endeavor with everybody being so short term in their thinking. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I've been sort of banging this drum really since 2012. So for literally for 10 years now. Um, and for the longest time, nobody has cared. I mean, people in the industry have cared and and we've got sort of this community of, of market structure nerds and we all love to sort of debate and argue each other and, and we do plenty of it. Um, and, you know, many would disagree with a lot of the things I'm saying and, and some would do so because they actually believe it, not just because their annual bonus comes from making that argument. Um, but for a long time, yeah, nobody has cared. And, you know, what, whatever you might think of this sort of new retail revolution over the last, you know, let's call it year and a half, two years, suddenly 
social media has made people care about a bunch of things and some they're not right about, but some of these things they are. And that, and that's sort of like the reason why I'm, I'm kind of back at this after having actually spent a bit of time, like sort of just focused on artificial intelligence and, and not really specifically on finance because uh, people do now care. They, they want to know that when they're buying or selling a stock, that that, that that transaction is going to impact the price of that stock. Uh, they want to know that when they, you know, that when trades are cleared and settled, that they are actually being cleared and settled. And the the lack of transparency in our current market structure fuels a lot of the frustration and anger that you're seeing. And I, I think you're right that it's not it, just focusing on transparency is unfortunately not go, not enough because first of all, the, even the disclosures themselves are even when they're even when they're adequate, they're very difficult to to make sense of, and yet alone, they're they're really very often not adequate. Um, but I, I think that, and and as I said, you know, on on the John Stewart show when I when I was on it recently, I, I think so much of this comes down to inducements and incentives and conflicts of interest. And if you can remove some of those and shine a light on others, I think you can have really effective change without sort of this top-down regulatory approach. I, I do think that in some of these areas of, of the market, the inefficiency and complexity is a result of regulation. So the answer has to come from the regulator. It has to be either peeling back certain regulations or making others more intelligent. Um, and then I, you know, I do think that we can have simpler, more competitive markets. Uh, and that's most of what I argue for. And then, uh, you know, if you can do that, the disclosures, while important, they're not the end all be all, right? If, if we can get down to fewer exchanges, and if we can get most trading to take place on exchange, so that we have this robust price discovery process, which is what markets are actually for, not, not for gambling, you know, then that is a good outcome not just for investors, but for the real economy. And, you know, so because I think this has an impact on the real economy, uh, I think that the answers have to come, you know, uh, th th you need to bring pressure to Congress and to the regulator to show them that people now do care about these issues. And, and that's part of also what we're trying to do with this We the Investors um, effort that we launched uh, earlier this month, which is to educate and empower investors so that they understand how these issues impact them and they understand how it might impact, you know, the stocks and companies that they care about. Um, and that the cost is not zero, right? The, the, there, there's nothing, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? There's no such thing as free trading. And as much as uh, the internalizers might want you to believe that, it's, it's just not accurate and there is a cost. And so the, these costs should be transparent first. And second, if they are, you know, if there are practices that are negatively impacting the market, we, we should try to end those practices. I believe that this is an, you know, a, at, at best an oligopoly, but, you know, pretty much a duopoly uh, in which you have Citadel and Virtu um, and they control, you know, anywhere from 60 to 70 percent of the off exchange uh, internalization market. And that's come down. And I you know, I believe that's come down purposefully on their part because they are trying to not attract 
the attention of Gary Gensler, uh, who has spoken many times about the problems with corporate concentration of power, especially here. I did a, I had done a quick analysis using something uh, called a Herfindahl index of the off exchange trading market and found it um, last year to be extremely highly concentrated, sort of qualifying for a duopoly. And even after them backing off a bit after a Gensler speech, and trying to make it look like it's more competitive than they are, it's still across the threshold that the Department of Justice would normally use for antitrust action. So it's still what would be considered anti-competitive. And then when you fold in the idea that these are also the two most powerful on-exchange market-making firms, you start to see the incredible sort of scale and information advantage that they have over everyone. And that's why... Uh, we don't see competition bringing these margins down. That's why the you know the, the free market here is not working uh, because of this this sort of concentration of corporate power. So, you know, all I ever argue for, especially when it comes to sort of retail and retail trading and and payment for order flow, is that we should simply have open competition for order flow. That's it, right? All of these orders that are small and crossing the spread should not be segmented and isolated off exchange, which turns the exchanges into these uh, essentially what are called toxic uh, cesspools where the adverse selection and toxicity is extremely high, which widens spreads for everybody in the market. So a, a, a recent study looked at this and, and found that the level of toxicity on exchange would be reduced by so such a dramatic extent, if you brought all of these retail orders on exchange, that spreads would tighten by 25%. So if you can imagine the cost of spreads being wider by 25% across the market to the entire market every day, you're talking billions of dollars uh, of cost to everyone, institutions and retail. So if instead these orders were brought to a more centralized, transparent venue where hundreds of market makers could compete over them, they would get better prices than they do today. Spreads would tighten dramatically. It, it would be overall just an excellent outcome for markets, for retail, and for institutions. It's very rare that you find such a win-win proposition anywhere, let alone in markets. Um, the only losers would be the internalizers, Citadel and Vertu. And uh, some of the retail brokers, but not all, because not all retail brokers accept payment for order flow. Uh, And you have other countries in which you don't have payment for order flow, and you still have zero commission trading. So these things are not sort of intertwined as, as, you know, the internalizers would like us to believe. So, you know, I, I think that would be a really important change. I would like to see something similar to Canada. Canada has a rule. It's a very simple rule. And it says that if you are going to execute a small order off exchange, so block in institutional sized orders are exempted from this, but if you're going to execute a small order, you have to provide material price improvement. That's it. It's the simplest rule you can have. And material price improvement here is defined as half of the spread if the spread is a tick wide, or a full tick if the spread is more than a tick wide. Uh, And that would represent a relatively dramatic change uh, for U.S. markets, but it would bring them more in line with the U.K., Australia, and Canada. And and when you actually look at execution quality on those in those countries, um, you find that if you adjust for company size, you you actually do have better execution quality on many 
uh, on many markets outside of the U.S., which are less fragmented. So it's usually fragmentation is the key to whether you're going to have uh, lower execution costs or not. I don't know that I would agree that I see them embracing blockchain uh, first. You know, I I know the Nizi, um and T Zero have, have sort of you know come together, and and that's certainly interesting, maybe. Um, but I, I I'm a skeptic. I got to say, and and I'm a skeptic because of how cynical I am. So you know, you've heard yeah. the my naive optimism, which I I still embrace, and you know, argue for what I think would be better, more efficient markets. But uh, my cynicism in seeing the corruption of the political process play out and the regulatory process play out um, says that, you know, the 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 old guard uh, who, you know, are focused on making everything new fit into current securities laws are very powerful. Um, not interested in updating securities laws. And, you know, I, I, I think there are incumbents that have a lot of political power and a lot of financial power and that don't want to see things change. You know, for example, I've been pushing to just update like the simplest disclosures in markets called Rule 605 and Rule 606, which are just like execution quality stats for exchanges and broker order outing stats for brokers. Um, it totally non-controversial stuff, literally for 10 years. And they made like one small change to 606, but they, they haven't updated 605. It's completely out of date and worthless. And, they, you know, the SEC can't even get its act together on that. And so the idea that they're going to sort of, you know, embrace decentralization and, you know, accept, you know, because decentralization to embrace it, you have to accept that there are things essentially, you know, out of your control uh, things you can't roll back if they happen, for example, right? And uh, I think that that kind of uh, philosophy is not one you find on Wall Street or in Washington right now, unfortunately. It, it blows my mind that this many people, um, you know, now care about market structure. And, and you know, I, I love it and it's, it's fun. Um, but it, it really is an incredible, I, you know, I think it's an incredible statement about how much retail has changed over the last two years um, and how much more, you know, interested and informed they're becoming. It's either that or it's a bunch of Citadel bot accounts. (laughs) 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 But you never know, it could be possible. All right, hold on. So so, so you put out a couple of tweets on what's going on in with nickel, which I think is interesting, the way the exchanges have responded to this, this volatility. I I am curious to hear your thoughts on what's happening with, with some of these insane moves in the commodity space and how exchanges are responding to them. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Uh, yeah, I mean, it. you know, from I, I'm not an expert in, in commodities, uh, but, you know, from my sort of vantage, it, it just seems so insane and corrupt what is taking place just 
you know, in plain sight. They're not, it's not even trying to be subtle about it. You know, you've got somebody with a, a short position larger than the global supply, right? And, you know, obviously, it's it's a similar thing that we're seeing in other places where an, an excessive short position is either discovered and, you know, people take advantage of that, or it's, you know, it's just on the wrong side of the trade. And suddenly, you know, the LME just keeps canceling sessions. I, I have not seen anything like that. I mean, you know, again, I, as we talked about, I lived through the flash crash, a lot of trades were busted. A lot of those trades were at stub quotes, they were, you know, they fall under the clearly erroneous definition. Um, and, you know, there are existing sort of policies for managing through that. So, you know, maybe you'd agree with that, maybe you don't, but at least it was sort of an explicit policy and very sort of, um, you know, time, time constrained, right? You, you had a certain period of time for a clearly erroneous trade. You had to report it. Uh, if you didn't, that's it. The trade stands here. We're just seeing, you know, the LME say, we, we don't like the price that it closed at. So we're declaring all trades null and void. Uh, in order to protect, you know, what I understand is a massive margin call that would hit, you know, this this Chinese billionaire and JP Morgan uh, so hard that maybe it represents a systemic risk. But if that's the case, that in itself is so extremely problematic that a short position on nickel was ever even allowed to get to that extent, which, you know, again, it, it, think what you will about uh, things like GameStop, but you know, 140% of the float being short it, it, it's the kind of thing that just doesn't really make much sense in markets. It's not the kind of thing you can explain uh, to a person uh, and it doesn't help to sort of engender trust in markets and, and, you know, an exchange sitting here just canceling day after day of trading until they get the price they want to protect, you know, the, this, this, this person who is, you know, clearly important to the exchange. I, I, I don't know. I, I think that this is, a huge problem and it's a problem again of sort of corruption and and concentration of of power and and you know maybe it means that the, a competitive nickel uh exchange is going to emerge from it and maybe that's a good thing but as we're, we're witnessing sort of the complete dysfunction and breakdown of a market on a global scale i i i don't know i don't know what to say other than that it's it's mind-boggling to me it, it, it is crazy that you end up having <laughs> clear uh, short interest, which is above and beyond whatever you could possibly imagine. How does it even get to be that bad? I mean, is, is it you'd think that the exchanges or some other entity would have some limiters there, right? There's got to be something that prevents this kind of stuff from happening. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the I mean, when, when you're looking at equities, the, the stock lending market is probably one of the least transparent and most opaque parts of the entire equities market. And so, you know, that's, that's awfully problematic. And, you know, I, I, I know from personal experience that when you're trading and you get your locates for the day, that doesn't mean, you know, so you get a spreadsheet from your broker. That doesn't mean that broker's not sending those same spreadsheets out to a bunch of other people offering the same shares, you know, to all sorts of different clients. I think the controls around this stuff are, are really suspect. And then you add on top of that rehypothecation and, and you know, lending out lent shares and all of this. And, and I, I just think that it, you end up with sort of these nonlinear loops. You know, so when I, when I look at markets, when I look at the flash crash, for example, I see a lot of nonlinearities and I see a lot of nonlinear loops. And, and this is one of those areas, uh, you know, where when you have someone or something 
that gets in over their head in terms of shorting that can lead to this nonlinear loop, which is a, you know a short squeeze superficially, but is really sort of symptomatic of of kind of just the dysfunction of lending and of securities lending. Um, and and of course, you know, on the other side with nickel, it, just the fact that that they have counterparties that are willing to take the other side of that trade and end up with more than the entire physical supply short. It, it yeah, I, again, like I you know I think you should be able to explain things in markets to people, right? And that's how you give people trust in markets. And when you get into these situations and you just can't explain it rationally, I, I just think that's a problem for trust in markets. I'll start with the bull case. I'll, I will I will play the other side that you know I never play, which is okay. Why why is this a good system? And and there are there are three I think main reasons. Uh, the first is that Virtu and Citadel will tell you, hey, you're getting the best price you possibly can. We are giving you price improvement. How amazing is that? You're getting a price that's better than the NBBO. Okay, that's item one. Item two is thanks to the our generous payments to your broker, you know, you're getting to trade for free. It's zero commission. I mean, how generous are we that we will do that for you? We're just, we love to give, right? And and then the last is um, a very kind of wonky point, which is that it, it gets into the self-regulatory structure. But because stock exchanges are self-regulatory, that makes them ex- an extension of the SEC. They're quasi-governmental. And what that means is that they have immunity. So if something goes wrong on an exchange, they are not liable for it. And this ha- happened during the Facebook IPO. This happened during the flash crash. Uh, brokers who were interacting directly with the exchanges had no recourse. So it's a regulatory dysfunction as well. So if you interact just with this internalizer, this generous internalizer, uh, Citadel or Virtu, you have legal recourse against someone. So those are the three arguments that will be made uh, for this this crazy system that has resulted in you know something like 90 to 95% of all retail trades executing within the internalization systems of two or three firms. You know, the the other side of the argument, the arguments that I make, first, you know, price improvement is a joke. It's a complete and total joke. I did a study on this recently, and by and large, most price improvement that retail receives is one mil. So that's one penny per hundred shares that they trade. And you can you can see this just by looking at public data. It, something like 40% of all price improvement is less than 10 mils. Uh, which is ten cents per hundred shares. So it's it's de minimis price improvement. It's a joke, and it's against a false benchmark. The NBBO, as currently constructed, is a false benchmark because one, it doesn't include odd lots, which for stocks, you know, like higher price stocks, Google and Amazon, you know, that's that's a crazy idea that the NBBO does not include odd lots. Um, and second of all, it just doesn't reflect. The interest out there, the like I said before, the NBBO is twenty five percent wider because these trades are executing in Citadel and Virtue's internal systems, and so you widen the spread by twenty five percent, and then you say retail, you should really be thanking us that we're giving you a penny for every hundred shares you execute with us. So that's the joke of price improvement and the NBBO. You know, zero commissions. That's 
there, there are brokers out there that don't accept payment for order flow that can still make zero commission models work. Uh, like public is one of those brokers in the U S there are others in other countries that don't allow payment for order flow. So the zero commission argument is, is bunk. And that's again, where we need regulatory change. You know, exchanges should not be self-regulatory organizations while they're publicly traded for profit. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, so, you know, I, I would argue that that needs to change, but uh, out, outside of that, you should still be able to have, um, you know, retail brokers who do the thing, the best, act in the best interests of their customers and actually achieve best execution, uh, which is not something that they're doing today. And you cannot get best execution when all you're doing is interacting uh, with Citadel and Virtu. And this is clear now, it's coming out in, in study after study, but it's clear that, you know, they're not achieving best execution and they're failing that fiduciary duty that they have to their customers. So I, I did just share a tweet. It's um, it's something that I'm trying to organize, which I call We the Investors, and and I see it as a grassroots advocacy movement. You know, up until very recently, uh, Robinhood, Schwab, E-Trade, Citadel, Virtu would hold themselves out to be the representatives of retail and individual investors in DC and at the regulator. And I just don't think that's right. And, and you know, they, they productize retail investors. They, they don't, you know, it's not, it's not the retail investors who pay the brokers anymore. It's the internalizers. And so for them to hold themselves out as representing retail interests is, is just disingenuous. So, um, I, you know, yeah, I am trying to start this grassroots advocacy movement. It, part of it is calling Congress. Part of it is getting educated on the issues um, there will be a payment for order flow and off-exchange trading proposal coming out of the SEC this year. That That is a certainty. The question is, will it be focused on disclosure or will it be focused on actually changing market structure? And, and I believe that if enough people let Congress know and let the SEC know that they want to see real change, that that will give Gensler the backing that he needs. He needs support to do this because, you know, he's going up against some very powerful interests. I think he wants to make this change. Uh, you know, I base that off of speeches and things that I've heard uh, him say and, and people who have met with him. I, I do think that this is an area where there's bipartisan agreement, but there's still some very powerful, you know, interests pushing against it. So, you know, in my mind, this year is the year uh, for payment for order flow. It will either end this year in the U.S., um, or that's it. And so, you know, I think that the a movement of individual investors is the only way to counter, you know, the lobbyists and the campaign contributions that are, that are fighting to maintain the system. And, you know, I'm going to keep pushing. I've been pushing on it for a while. And, and I think that the fact that so many retail investors care now is probably the best hope that we've had in a decade of actually ending the system. It just seems really challenging to keep focused on this, right? Because I think when most people see the name of the space, the stock market is broken. The first thing they think about is, well, no shit because of the Fed. But we're not necessarily <laughs> talking about, but we're not talking about the Fed here, right? We're talking about yeah. the mechanics, the operational stuff that happens day to day, which, you know, is, is kind of like the invisible gorilla, right? That's there, oh, but yeah. nobody really notices it, right? So, right. so, I mean, other than, other than just bringing awareness and attention to it, I mean, is there some louder megaphone is there some other way to get people to spend the time and self-educate because i go back to what i said initially right the, the problem i think that most people have is that they are so short-term in their thinking 
that it gets hard. It, it's getting hard. It's getting harder and harder to actually advocate for change because people are so easily distracted with other things. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. And I totally agree that, you know, the Fed is, <laughs> is, is sort of the foundation of many of these problems. And, and part of that is the, you know, it's your interest rates, you're, you just push people into the market, you force them into the market, because it's the only possible yield out there, right? So, um, I, I mean, I think that there is now sort of renewed popular attention on these issues. So in 2014, Michael Lewis published Flash Boys and, and, you know, the problems that he and mistakes that he made in that book aside, you know, it was the first bit of popular attention on market structure. Um, and it, you're right, it didn't last and it didn't, it, it sort of failed to capture widespread interest um, outside of, you know, some dark dark pool enforcement cases that were great and resulted in huge fines and the ending of some very corrupt practices. But, uh, you know, I think suddenly we have some renewed attention. You know, if, if everyone hasn't seen John Stewart's episode on markets that came out earlier this month that I, you know, was <laughs> got to be part of, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd urge you to, to check it out. And, you know, that, that kind of interest and, and there was an HBO documentary on the same issue. We're going to see two more documentaries coming out over the coming months, one on Netflix, uh, and one that's being independently produced. And I, you know, I think that that steady drumbeat of maintaining these issues in, in front of people is, is what gives me hope that this is the time to strike. And this is finally where, you know, enough people care and there's enough information out there and it's clear enough what the problem is. And you have someone at the SEC who wants to fix it. You know, I don't, I don't think we've had that kind of confluence of factors before. So, uh, like I said before, Canada outlawed it. Um, Australia and the UK. Uh, Europe is doing so. Uh, it's not as widespread in Europe because of um, certain disclosures that were brought in with MIFID II, but it was, you know, it was still allowed, but it's, um, it's, likely going away in Europe. It, it does seem like there, I think Germany might maintain it. Um, it's not quite clear to me there, but uh, overall, uh, you just, you don't tend to find it to the same extreme extent in other places because I, I think it's more of sort of a historical thing. You know, in the U.S., uh, look, when it comes down to it, payment for order flow was invented many decades ago uh, and i guess i should it, it existed in many forms but it was it was brought into its current form by bernie madoff <laughs> so let's not let's not miss that point this is an this is something that we can all thank bernie madoff for and if that wasn't enough to get rid of it it's shocking you know i don't know what would be but you know that's if you look at other countries like canada who got rid of it and if you ask canadian regulators you say hey what what happened with execution and market quality? They're, they will tell you, we don't care. <laughs> they will tell you, when we look at it, we saw off-exchange trading drop from something like 20 to 30% to under 7% of trading. And that was the goal. That is our goal. Not, And we were not worried about market quality. They achieved their goal and they were happy with it. The problem Canada faced is that a lot of volume in Canada is on interlisted names, and there's a race to the bottom uh, as flow moves across the border into the U.S. And, and that was a big problem, actually, with Canadian brokers sending order flow south of the border and getting paid for it, that the Canadian regulators had to remind the brokers, you can't do that. Uh, the U.K. and Australia have, n have not seen negative outcomes from outlying payment for order flow. 
Um, I believe um, South Korea, I'm not sure what the state of it is, but I know that it's a, it's, it's a market that is not fragmented like the U.S. And so when you look at execution quality across these markets, actually, when you can, like I said earlier, when you control for company size, you actually find that there's better execution quality uh, in other markets relative to the U.S., likely due to our to both our level of fragmentation and the fact that we segment all of this order flow, which makes market making less profitable for everyone but the internalizers. And so XTX, which is a large high frequency firm that is on the same side of this issue, did a really good study and they showed that the U.S. is lagging other markets. And this is most likely one of the main reasons why. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that we can look at other countries to see what they've done. And, you know, as I said before, the Canadian rule is a very simple rule. I like that in regulation. I don't like thousand page rules that have loopholes and can be exploited all over the place. I like five sentences that explain the rule. It's a bottom up approach. It's very clear why you're doing it. And it has, you know, the desired effects. And that's what I think that we should we should look for in the U.S. Simplicity is always anti-fragile. I think exactly. It's yeah. So listen, everybody that's been uh, here for the hour, uh, again, please make sure you follow Dave Lauer. Dave, first time you and I are speaking, uh, this was a real pleasure, you know, different from the other spaces that I tend to do, which are much more, you know, talk about kind of market investment ideas. So I'm glad that you were part of this. And let me know, by the way, if you want to dig a little bit deeper on that point I sent you on the DM about uh, junk debt and what seemed to be a credit event before the flash crash in 2010, because I think there's a lot of uh, strange things still that are yet to be uncovered about that that day that we can learn from. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. That that was really kind of eye opening to me. Is that it's something I've studied a lot and hadn't really been aware of it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look into it more. And I've asked a couple of people who are even more you know expert on it than I am. So you know, yeah, I'd love to follow up. And and thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, very good. Thank you, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.